This week in life of our church, we will be focusing on Spy Academy and uh, training our, our young people on uh, how to be those that can sort of crack the code, be able to understand the things in Scripture and be able to uh, take it and to explain it to others. And so as we were thinking about this whole week, uh, and I knew they were going to have a different setup up here, uh, I thought, well, you know, in the Scripture it talks about uh, some of the first spies that, that we ever read about are found in Numbers chapter 13. And it's a, uh, an account of when uh, they were trying to spy out this new land that God was giving them. And uh, today I want us to take a look in Numbers 13 about not just how these guys were sent to spy out the land, but to keep in mind that every one of us every day is spying out the land of the cultural landscape that we live in. And the question is, is how will we respond to what is going on in our world, and how are we to respond to what Jesus has said, and then as his followers, how are we to approach that? And so Numbers chapter 13, if you'll start right there, I'm going to lead you up to that. You see, God in the book of Genesis made a covenant with a man by the name of Abraham. And when it came to Genesis chapter 12, it says that he selected this man, Abraham, and he met with him and he said, Abraham, I want to build a great nation through you. You will be the father of a great nation. And in Genesis 12, 7, it says this, and then the Lord appeared to Abram and he said, to your offspring, I will give this land. He called him to leave his homeland and to travel to an area called Canaan and to come to this land. And he told them, I'm going to give you your offspring, this land. You'll be the father of a great nation. And this is the land where you will be. And then he reiterated that promise to Abraham, to his son, Isaac, to Isaac's son, Jacob. And then when you get to the end of the book of Genesis, And you get to uh, one of Jacob's sons, Joseph, who was this, turned out to be this great ruler in Egypt. And before he died, this is what he said. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And what Joseph is saying is, it doesn't end here in Egypt. What God is going to do is he's going to bring you to the land that he promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And all of a sudden, what happens is, is after Joseph dies and the people there in Egypt began to forget all the great things he did, and they began to see the Israelites as more as servants and slaves. And so over 400 years, they began to grow in number, but they were in servitude to the Egyptians. And they cried out to God, and they said, God, we, we, we need to release us from all of this. We feel like you have forgotten us. And it says God heard their cries, and then he raised up a leader to lead them out of Egypt and by the name of Moses. And so he, he comes to Moses and he comes in the form of a burning bush to where uh, Moses sees this and God speaks to him and he begins to give him a call to lead the children out of Egypt. But it wasn't just to bring them out of Egypt, but it was to bring them into the promised land. And so in Exodus chapter six, verses seven through eight, this is what it says. God speaking to Moses says, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am the the Lord, your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. You'll know I'm your God because I'm bringing you out of Egypt, but 
I will then bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, and I will give it to you for possession. I am the Lord. We go all the way back to Genesis. He says, Abraham, I've got a land for you. Isaac, I've got a land for you. Jacob, I've got a land for you. Over 400 years, and they keep talking about this, and now God comes to Moses, and he says, hey, I just want to let you know, I am your God. I'll bring you out of Egypt, but it's not just for you to wander around or to to spread out. It is I have a land, what we call the promised land, set aside for you. I've got a land set aside for you. Well, if you know most of the story is that they ended up leaving Egypt. And Moses leads them. They leave Egypt. They make their way through the wilderness. And they get right to the edge of the promised land. And that's where you pick up Numbers 13. And they're right at the edge of the promised land. And they're getting ready to move in. And then there's a little bit of a change of plan. Now, in order to fully understand Numbers 13, you get a little bit of an insight when you look at Deuteronomy chapter 1. You say, whoa, don't lose me, Dana Kenneth. Stay with me. Stay with me. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Okay? You go through those first four books of the Old Testament. Numbers are right there on the edge of the promised land. And then the book of Deuteronomy. Now, I'm just going to kind of give you a spoiler alert. They end up not going in, and they wander for 40 years in the wilderness. At the end of that 40 years, they come right back to the edge of the promised land. In the book of Deuteronomy is Moses giving final instructions. And it's just a review of everything that happened in those 40 years and a reminder of God's commands. And when you read Deuteronomy, you get a little bit of an insight to Numbers 13. Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 21 through 23. 40 years later, Moses is talking to the people and says, let me remind you this. See, the Lord your God has set the land before you. Go up, take possession as the Lord, the God of your fathers has told you. Do not fear or be dismayed. He says, that's what God told us. We need to go. Then all of you came near me and you said, let us send men before us that they may explore the land for us and bring us word again of the way by which we must go up in the cities unto which we shall come. In essence, let's do a reconnaissance mission Before we go into the land, why don't we send some spies into the land, let them check the land out, find out what is the best route for us to enter into the land. And he said this, the thing seemed good to me, and I took 12 men from you, one man from each tribe. So Moses took the idea to God, and the God says, hey, it's a good idea. Let's do that. But it was more than a reconnaissance mission. It was getting ready to be a test of their faith. And so you pick it up in Numbers chapter 13, verses, starting at verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I'm giving to the people of Israel. Send men to spy out the land, which I'm giving to the people of Israel. Don't miss that. I want you guys to go take a look at the land, the land that I, the sovereign God of the universe, am giving to you. So I'm going to give you the land. I just want you to spy it out. Then he says, from each tribe of their fathers, you shall send a man, every one a chief among them. So Moses sent them from the wilderness of Paran, according to the command of the Lord, all of them men who are heads of the people of Israel. He said, pick a a leader of each tribe. There are 12 tribes of Israel made up of tens of thousands of people. And out of that large group of people, they were to choose one leader 
Now, if you're going to choose one leader to go in to spy out the land, it's going to be a person of influence, uh, a person who pretty well knows what's going on. He's got a handle on uh, what's happening in the tribe. It's a person that's well-respected. It's a leader, and most likely it's a godly man because they've been following God all this time. Most likely they're going to raise up a leader that's a godly man. So you got a godly leaders that have been chosen from each tribe, and there are 12 of them. These 12 get together, put their hands together, and go, hey, break. And then they break, and they're getting ready to head out into the promised land. In verses 4 through 16, it gives you the names of each one of these leaders. And then you pick up on verse 17. And in verse 17, this is the direction. He says, I want you to spy out the land. So what does it mean by spy out the land? Well, verse 17, he says, I want you to go into the Negeb, that is the wilderness, kind of the desert area, and then move all the way up into the hill country. So you start down here, kind of in this desert area, and then you move upward until you get to the hill country. He says, that's what I want you to do. And then what I'd like you to do is I've got you an assignment, and I want you to do an evaluation of three things. I want you to evaluate the land, the people, and the cities. The land, the people, and the cities. And this is what he says. Verse 18, see what the land is, and whether the people who dwell in it are strong or weak, whether they are few or many, whether the land that they dwell in is good or bad. So I want you to look at the land, is it good or bad? Is it rich or is it poor? What does the land look like, okay? And it says, and whether the cities and they dwell are in camps or strongholds, whether the land is rich or poor, and whether there are trees in it or not. This is what I want you to do. Go check the land out. Is it good or is it bad? Is it rich? Is it poor? And I laugh out of everything he said in there. And then he says, are there trees? Are there trees? I've read this a bunch, and I never really ever saw that jump out at me. If you ever lived in West Texas... And you were going to take a journey. You just wanted to get back to Alabama for one reason. What is that? No, football. (laughs) Yeah, trees. Yeah, (laughs) real football, right? No, trees. That's right. When you're out West Texas, you don't know what a tree is. Then all of a sudden you get to Alabama. You say, I'm just so glad for the trees. I just laughed out here where Moses says, is the land rich? Is it poor? Is it good? Is it bad? And does it have any trees? Come on, man. Check out the trees. So check out the land. So first of all, we want you to check out the land. But they also want you to check out the people, whether the people who dwell in it are strong or weak. Are there a lot of folks or not many folks? In the cities, I want you to come back and tell me, do they have fortified cities or are they just like glorified campgrounds? Let me know. So that was their marching instructions. And the very last thing he said to them was, and bring some of the fruit of the land. Now, the time was the season of the first ripe grapes. So most people believe this was late July or early September, somewhere in that, in that range, and it was the first harvest of the grapes. And he said, bring some samples. Bring some samples. Let our people see what the fruit of the land is. Well, they got their marching orders, and verses 21 through 25, they carried out their mission. He says, so they went up and they spied out the land from the wilderness of Zen to Rehob near uh, Labo Hamath, and they went up into the Negeb and they came to Hebron. They did exactly what he said. We started low and we began to move high. 
Some commentators have said that these 40 days that they were out there, they covered anywhere from 350 to 500 miles. All this territory. They looked over all of the land. And it says, and they came to Hebron, and then they gave three names. Ahiman, Shishai, and Talmai, the descendants of Anak, were there. Hebron was built seven years before Zon in Egypt. And so out of all of this, 40 days, 40 days, they mentioned, we start in the Negev and went all the way up to Hebron. That was about the only city that he mentioned. They mentioned Hebron, of all things. Now, I think this is kind of cool. Is that out of all the 40 days and all the things that they saw, they said, we went to Hebron. Now, Abraham, all the way back in Genesis, right? The first guy that the promise was ever given to. As he traveled that land, he bought a piece of property there in Hebron. And that's where he set up his camp. And when Abraham died, that's where he was buried. And when his wife died, that's where she was buried. When his son Isaac died, that's where he was buried. When Jacob died, that's where he was buried. So this is the burial ground of the great patriarchs of the faith. The men who took the promises of God, believed the promises, claimed the promises, and said one day, the nation will live in this land. And so these guys are traveling along and all of a sudden they come into Hebron. It's like standing on a hallowed ground. We're standing here at the grave sites of the great patriarchs. These were the men that God gave the message to 440 years ago. 440. How old are we as a nation? Like 220, 230 years? This is double that. It's been that long since the promise. And now all of a sudden we're standing here. And I don't know about you, but that kind of gave me some goosebumps. To realize that a promise that was given 440 years ago, I'm standing right there at the graveside, and I'm right on the cusp of seeing that promise come true. That would fire me up. Well, he points this out. That's what these guys saw. Well, looking good. Then look what it says. It says, then they came to the valley of Eshkol. And that word Eshkol means cluster. I mean, this is a ripe valley. And uh, he says, when they got to that valley, they cut down a branch with a single cluster of grapes and they carried it on a pole between two of them. And they also brought some pomegranates and figs. That place was called the Valley of Eshcol because of the cluster that the people of Israel cut down from there. And at the end of the 40 days, they returned from spying out the land. They did exactly what they were told. And you're waiting and all of a sudden, someone looks over there and they said, I think I see them coming. And they're carrying something. And you've seen kind of the depiction of a big pole with this massive thing of grapes and these two guys carrying it coming into the land. Got their pockets full of pomegranates and figs and things they probably haven't eaten in a while. And they're just laying it all out over here and said, we've just come back from the land. Oh, yeah, man. They came back and everybody shows up. They're ready. This is the first church business meeting. I mean, they're ready to hear and see what, uh, what the report is. And so everybody's there waiting for the report. <clears throat> and here they come. Well, the report's got two parts to it. We got good news. And we got some bad news. Let's talk about the good news first. The good news, verse 26. And they came to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation and they showed them the fruit of the land. They put on display all the fruit. And they told him, we came to the land to whence you sent us. It flows with milk and honey and this is its 
fruit. <clears throat> it flows with milk and honey. Milk and honey was a phrase during that day, which meant that it, there was an abundance to it. There was productivity in it. There was a fertile ground. And so whenever you'd say flows with milk and honey, it's the exact same thing that God told Moses. That's how he described the land. He says, Moses, I'm bringing you to the promised land and it flows with milk and honey. They came back and they said, hey, God's 100% correct. And I've got confirmation. I'm holding God's confirmation in my hand. It flows with milk and honey. Here's all the fruit. Here are the grapes. It's everything he said it was. And when they brought those grapes out and brought that fruit out, I can just see Moses standing off the side going, yes, yeah, this is it, baby. This is good. We're ready to go in. It's everything I've been told. It's everything that I thought it was and even more. And he's, he's just, I mean, he, he's sitting on G on O. He's ready to go, man. He's fired up. He says, this is great. What a report. This is exactly what we want. I've been waiting for this. We'll get a unanimous vote in this business meeting, and we're going to move forward. This is going to be so great. But it kind of went from glorious to gloomy. And while these people were glorying in the produce of the land, they had another group over here, and they were grumbling about the power of the people in the land. And then all of a sudden, you had these two spies, Caleb and Joshua. They were all excited about the fruit. Then you had a representative from the other ten. And they had the bad news, verses 28 and 29. In 28, it says, however, mm, you just don't like that, do you? <laughs> Somebody says this, 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 but, oh, I don't want to hear the but. Uh, I don't want to hear the however. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong. Now, the way this is written in the original Hebrew language, the word strong follows the word however. However, strong are the people in the land. So they're catching your attention right away. Strong are the people in the land. And the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. Oh my gosh, you could have said anything, but don't say that. <sighs> Anak, of all the people to be there, the descendants of Anak. Anak, these were the people that everybody was scared of. They were the giants. They were the big folks. And when you began to study about Goliath, you remember him with David and Goliath? He was a descendant of Anak, and he was nine feet nine, okay, and could dunk a basketball flat-footed. And so you've got these huge giants, and they said, <clears throat> hey, not only do they have big cities, they got big people. We found the descendants of Anak were there. So what they did, they started out with the scariest. I'm going to tell you, we got large cities and we got the Anak. I mean, these guys are bad. Hey, but it's not just that. Look what else we saw over there. And he comes up in verse 29. And he says, the Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negev. The Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the hill country. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. We got Amalekites, Hittites, Jebusites, Amorites, Canaanites. We got all kind of ites running all over the place. And they're all in this land. And we don't need to go up there. And they put fear in all of the people because of this. And you see, in God is in the midst of this and he says, I had no idea all those people were in that land. 
gosh, I wish I had known that. I'd have chosen a different subdivision. I, I mean, I, I had, had no idea. And that was part of my thought. I said, what did these people think? Did they think they're going to walk over? And God says, we got a whole new subdivision. We just cleared a lot of trees, and we're going to start some houses here. No one lives here. No, and guess what? Guess what God did? He already told them ites were going to be there. Exodus 3.17. This is when he talked to Moses, and he told Moses this, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. He even added some ites in it to it. He added the Perizzites and the Hivites. They didn't even see those guys, and there are probably some Parasites in there. Who knows? There are ites all over the place. But guess what God said? He says, hey, Moses, I'm going to send you into the land. i got to let you know there are a lot of ites all over the place. There are ites everywhere over there. But I'm giving you the land. I'm giving you the land. So don't, don't worry about it. And so what's, what's amazing is that these people were shocked. They were shocked that there were ites over there. But see, God had already told them that, and God had already promised them the victory. And that gets us right up there almost to the end of the book of Numbers where they sent these spies out there and they looked over the survey of the land and when they did, two of them were great. The other 10, they were terrified. And they put fear into the people. And I began to think about that and I said, what is it like today? How does this relate to today? Well, there's a verse of scripture that I think everyone needs to know and it's Romans 15, 4. In Romans 15, 4, he talks about the writings of the Old Testament, and it says this, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. You see, this incident was included in the Bible to give us endurance, to give us encouragement, and to give us hope. Because see, what was experienced then is the same as what we experience today in our Christian life. Look at it this way, spying out the land today, spying out the land today. When you look out over the cultural landscape of where we live today, you're like spies in the land. And if you put yourself in the same uh, place as these 12 that went out, let me put it in today's language. Number one, Jesus promises us abundant life. As you wake up every morning and you look out over the landscape and you see what's going on, you need to understand this promise. Jesus promises abundant life. John 10, 10, I have come that you may have life and have it more abundantly. That means with purpose. That means with meaning. God told the nation of Israel, I have a promised land for you. It is a land for you flowing with milk and honey. Jesus says, I've come to give you life life more abundantly. Number two, Jesus warns us of troubles. Jesus warns us of troubles. You see, what God said is there are going to be ites in the land. I just want to let you know that. And when Jesus came and he says, guys, I've come that you may have life and have it more abundantly. Also want to let you know I'm warning you of trouble. John 16, at the last supper with his disciples, right before he was arrested, he says, I've said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. Focus in on that part where he says, in the world you will have tribulation. Jesus, looking at his followers, said, I've come, you may have life and have it more abundantly. Hey, we love that part, but also we'll let you know that there will be tribulation. That word tribulation describes a situation so difficult that it causes one to feel stressed, squeezed, pressured, 
or crushed. It can be translated as distress, affliction, or trouble. But it always indicates a level of intensity that is almost unbearable in the natural realm. I want you to hear that. It almost always indicates a level of intensity that is almost unbearable in the natural realm. Jesus warns us of troubles. In the world, you will have tribulation. God told Moses, told the people, there are going to be ites in the land. There are going to be ites in the land. There's going to be trouble. But number three, none of these troubles takes Jesus by surprise. None of these troubles takes Jesus by surprise. Hey, the ites were in the land. When the, when the report came back, he says, there are ites in the land. God says, I know. You're not telling me anything new. I already know this. And none of these troubles that you have in your life and I have in my life take Jesus by surprise. The illness, the unemployment, the broken relationship, the promotion that didn't come, the tragic accident, the teenager that disappointed you or the parent that let you down or the threats of terror and persecution as they continue to increase on one hand and common sense and civility decrease on the other hand. And as our culture becomes more godless every day, does this completely take Jesus by surprise? Not at all. It's not that he's pleased with this. It's just it doesn't take him by surprise. In this world, you will have tribulation. These things will happen in this world. And he says, this doesn't surprise me. Because that brings you to the fourth point is that Jesus assures us of victory. And he says, but take heart. Because I've overcome the world. That word take heart means to have courage. He says when you look out over the cultural landscape of this world. Of what you wake up to every morning. He says you will see tribulation. But it's just no big surprise to me. So take heart. Have courage. And why is that? Because I have overcome the world. I've overcome the world. It's the Greek word nikos, where they get Nike from. It means victory. Because I've overcome the world. I have victory over the world. And the grammar, the way this is written, does not imply a single victory in the past, but is a continuous and abiding victory. It is a continuous and abiding victory. I have overcome the world. And don't sit there and say, well, I know you overcame what happened when I was a teenager, but now I'm 30 years old dealing with different struggles over there. He says, I have overcome the world. And whether you're in your senior adult years or you're in your teenage years, he says, I have overcome the world. And when he says the world, it includes all the human systems of this world. The arena where Satan attempts to wield his influence and attack the church and God's people. Now, this is quite an audacious, audacious statement for Jesus to make when he says, but I have overcome the world. Because hours after he made that statement, he was arrested, he was beaten, and he was nailed on a cross. And these same followers saw him die on a cross. And after he hung for six hours, suspended between heaven and earth, and then he breathed his last breath. They took his body down. They wrapped it up, prepared him for burial, and placed him in a tomb, closed the rock, and people thought it was over. And yet he says, I have overcome the world. 
But you see, the glorious truth of the resurrection is that three days later, when God raised Jesus from the dead, he showed that he had overcome the world. Satan put down his trump card of death, and then Jesus came back and trumped it with resurrection and says, "Mm mm-mm, not in my house. I've overcome that. I've overcome sin, and I've overcome death. And I have overcome, and the only reason you're even operating is because I'm allowing you to it, but I'm going to limit what you can do. I have already overcome the world because Jesus is a stronger man and he has freed people from the dominion of the evil one. So while we look over this cultural landscape and we're still living in a world where the battle is still raging and the battle is not over, but it's already been decided. And that's the good news. There's still battles that are going on and at times it causes you to just get down and depressed But what God wants you to do is when you feel that way, he wants you to get down, but he wants you to get down on your knees. And he said, I want you to get on your knees and I want you to pray. Because the only way we're going to, you make it through this world and through all this tribulation, you can't make it on your own. You make it along with the power of God. And he says, I want to come alongside of you and walk with you through this. And as I walk with you, you will see the victory. You will see the victory. And so even as these spies came and they they looked at that land, we spy out a landscape every day. And as we spy out the cultural landscape, you will fall into one of two areas just like the spies did. And there are two types of spies. Number one, it's the trusting two who are energized by their faith or you're the terrified ten who are paralyzed by fear. Write these down because you will, every one of us will fall into one of these camps. The trusting two, they were energized by their faith. Or the terrified ten, they were paralyzed by fear. Each one of these, of these spies. If you look in verses 30 through 33, it says, But Caleb quieted the people before Moses, and he said, Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone up with him said, we are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, the land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. (laughs) And all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim. And we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers. And so we seemed to them. You had two different groups. You had the trusting two and you got the terrified ten. Let me talk about the terrified ten. Terrified ten were paralyzed by their fear. They debunked this whole idea of going into the land. And their statement was, we are not able to. We are not able to. What they said, in essence, is that God was not sufficient to bring the task to completion. Oh, yeah, he's good at Red Sea stuff and gets us across that. Oh, and that's good. He can get us through this land, and he can get us right to the edge of the promised land. But when you move into the land, I don't think he can handle that. He's not sufficient for that. And so what these men did was they did two things. They magnify the problems, and they minimize the resources. Magnify the problems and minimize the resources. And when you look at the cultural landscape of where we are today, you can be one of the terrified ten, paralyzed by fear. 
because you have just magnified the problems, minimized the resources, magnified the problems. We were like grasshoppers in their sight. It's not just the fact that they were really tall and big. We were like grasshoppers in their sight. This is a land that devours its inhabitants. How would you like to go to sleep on that one, young people? And you wake up that next morning and say, hey, you want to go on the land? I don't think I want to. I've seen too many of those scary movies where the land devours you. When you go into the land, it just goes, suck you up. No one will see you again. He'll spit the bones out. It's the Kraken. Oh, my gosh. We are like grasshoppers. Well, I'd be kind of scared, too, personally, if I'm sitting out there hearing that report, saying, sheesh, that was a good 40 days. I'm glad you all found all that stuff out. And see, what you do is you begin to look at that, and you, and you uh, begin to, to maximize all these problems, but then at the same time, you minimize the resources. In all of their report, they left one person out. Do you realize who they left out? God. There was no mention of God anywhere in here. It was all on our resources saying, hey, we can't do this. We can't do this. We're too small. All of this. And they had forgotten all the things that God had done for Abraham, for Isaac, for Jacob, for Joseph, and all of this. They had also forgotten the God that parted the Red Sea and allowed them to get out and all the miracles that took place right there to get them to the point over here in the, on the edge of the promised land. And see, what they had done is the most powerful army on the planet was Egypt. They were the most powerful army. And do you know where that army was residing at that time? At the bottom of the Red Sea. And do you know why they were at the bottom of the Red Sea? Because God took care of them. There's no way a bunch of slaves could beat, beat up the Egyptian army. But God took care of it. Now, apparently they completely forgot about that. And what they did was they began to minimize their resources as to, as to what they had. And, and when we're one of those terrified ten, we downplay what God has given us as resources, and we also downplay what God himself will do. Because God will oftentimes work miracles, and he works miracles through us using our resources. You remember one of those high fortified cities, the name of it was Jericho? Do you know how those walls came down? Was, it, was they set a bunch of explosives all around it and sent that thing up? No, they called in the orchestra. And they said, hey guys, You've been practicing for a couple of days, about six days. Let's just blow that one note over here and let's blow some trumpet and the whole thing came down. Now, did the walls come down because those were more powerful trumpets than we've ever seen before? <laughs> Say, man, we got to get some of those. No. And God took the resources, their skill, playing a trumpet, and God infused his power in there and says, I'm going to use something so simple like that and we're going to bring these walls down. All right. Now, what were the people that they were the most scared of? Tell me, what were they called? You remember? Tell me, start with an A. Anak, Anak. And who descended from Anak? Goliath. Now, there was a battle between Goliath and a teenager. And the teenager pulled out some M80 or whatever and, and, and he starts blowing him apart. No, how did David take down Goliath? He had a stone and a sling. Now, with a stone and a sling, he just used a resource that God had given him. He took it, he nailed him, and through God's providential power, he hit him in that one weak spot and takes him out. These are the people that were keeping them from getting into the promised land. 
A city with fortified walls that the blow of a trumpet could drop. A giant that a young teenager could come in, coming off the fields of working with the sheep, take a rock and a sling, hit him in the head and take him down. Then he takes his sword, cuts his head off and says, okay, who's next? But it held people for 40 years to keep from going into land. They were the terrified 10. And the terrified 10, as leaders, shared that and it paralyzed everybody. It was paralyzed by their field. Listen, don't minimize the resources of what God has given you plus his power to do great things, to influence people's lives and to advance his kingdom. Don't be one of those. Or you could be the trusting too. They were energized by their faith. They were energized by their faith. I just love verse 30. <laughs> They're quoting Caleb. Right, Caleb's there. They showed him all the fruits and everything. Everyone's oohing and on. And then all of a sudden, here come the terrified 10. They're sharing all how terrible everything is. He's listening to this whole report. Now, he listened to the entire report, all right? And after he heard all that, he quieted the people down. He says, okay, we've heard all the reports. Let's go with this. Let's go on up at once and occupy it, for we're well able to overcome it. It's just like, okay, y'all finished? If you already covered all your stuff? Okay, let's, let's suit up. We've got, a, got some plans here. I know exactly which direction we can go. Let's go occupy the land. Whoa, Caleb. You know what he did? He said, we're going in. We're going in and possessing it. You say, well, how in the world does this kind of guy get energized by faith? I mean, what energizes him? Let me give you and just write these down as we close. This is what he remembered and this is what we need to remember. Number one, you remember God's promises. He said, let's occupy it. Why is that? Because God's giving it to us. He did not say, let's go take it over. He just said, let's occupy it. See, God's giving it to us, so let's occupy it. Let's remember God's promises. Number two, remember God's power. God's power. We are well able to overcome it. Over and over again with the patriarchs in their travels through the wilderness, God has provided faithful and powerful enough. You remember God's promises. You remember God's power. You remember God's presence. Because in God's presence, God didn't say, I'm going to get you to the edge of the promised land, pat you on the rear and say, good job. Send me a postcard. He says, I will be with you. And he's going to go into the land. And they said, hey, us plus God is enough. Let's just move into the land. And last of all is remember God's past. Remember God's past. And that is all the things that he has done for you in the past. Be thankful. Praise God for all he's done. The same God who has met your needs in the past and is meeting your needs in the presence will not deny you his future provision. He met your needs in the past. He's meeting your needs now. Why would you say he's not going to do it in the future? That makes no sense. So when you think about that, I remember the promises that he made. He promised that the land is ours, so let's just take him up on his promises. God's power. How in the world do we get through that Red Sea and all the other things that have happened? We've seen the power of God. Let's move into the land. What about God's presence? He is, all, he is with us. He's put, he'll put fear into the lives of all of these people when they realize that God's presence is with us. And then remember his past. And whenever you begin to wonder, then you stop and you look back and you go to that old song where it says, count your many blessings, name them one by one and see what the Lord has done. You just go back and begin to say, he was faithful, he was faithful, he was faithful, he was faithful, he was faithful. I got a feeling he's got a track record going on over here. So I'm going to say, I think that he'll be faithful, he'll be faithful, he'll be faithful. And when I put all of that together, I'll be energized by my faith.
And I'll be one of the trusting too that will say, let's move forward. So as we look over the cultural landscape of where we live today and all the challenges that are before us, let's don't be paralyzed by our fear. Let's be energized by the faith in the one true God, the one who has overcome the world, who has promised the victory. And one day, he's coming back. And when he's coming back, he's just going to make it clear to every person that he is truly Lord and King and the Savior of this world. Let us walk from this place, energized by faith in the one true God. Let me listen to a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, these are perilous times that we live in. And, uh, you know, Lord, we can, we can relate to those spies as they went into the land because they saw some things that were scaring them just as we see things that scare us. But yet, Lord, remind us that you've already gone before us and that you have already claimed the victory. And there'll be battle skirmishes. We're going to get our knees scraped up. We're going to get bruises. There will be some hurts and there'll be pain. And we understand that. And Lord, you know that. But we have a father, a comforter, who can surround us. And not just to give us kind of false comfort, but to give us true comfort. Comfort that has a victory in it. Because you have already overcome all the things that we are struggling with. And help us to remember that. And then to lock arms with you. And then to navigate our way through this world. And as we do that, energized by our faith, help us to influence others and to advance your kingdom. And to be the ones that go into the land to say we serve a living God. For it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.